I guess we all know that Christians are supposed to live good lives. We might not be entirely sure why, but there's that assumption, isn't there? But the problem with being good is that it can take an awful lot of effort. Now, in theory, it sounds good, doesn't it? It sounds attractive, upright, and wonderful. When we read a passage of the Bible, we long for our lives and our relationships to be a delight. But in practice, it can be hard. It's difficult with so many failures. You see, when something is tiring and an effort, well, we don't really want to spend too much effort on it. Sure, we don't. So we work hard at things we're good at, and we cut ourselves some slack on the other things. Those things that come naturally to us, that aren't a struggle, well, we focus on them, we highlight them. And those things that we're ashamed of, well, we hide them. We try not to think of them. I guess it's the spiritual equivalent of the 80-20 rule, isn't it? We hope with that, that will be okay. 80% sounds good. But there's still that nagging doubt, especially when we screw things up yet again. How good is good enough? Am I doing enough? How good should Christians be? How good is good enough? Well, our passage today touches on such a question. How good is good enough? You see, this term at St. Luke's, we're working our way through the letter to the Ephesians. It's a letter written by Paul, one of Jesus' apostles, and it's to the young church in Ephesus. And as we've had the first four chapters, we've heard some wonderful things about Christianity. We've discovered that Christians are people, Christians, people who know and love and trust Jesus. We've learned that they are included in Christ and Christ is in them. You see, if you're a Christian here this morning, you're spiritually connected with Jesus. You're in him, he's in you, you're united. There's a spiritual bond, a bond that's closer than a husband and a wife. And in chapter two, if you're a Christian, you've been made alive because of Jesus. You see, before we come to Jesus, we're spiritually dead. There's nothing we can do and nothing we can do about it. Dead people can't do anything. But Jesus can change us. And more than change, he can give us life, spiritual life, life to the full. We just need to come to him. If we're united with Jesus, we gain life, his life. And if we're united with Jesus, if we're included in him, well, then we're united with everyone else who's united to him, who's included in him. So it doesn't matter if another Christian comes from a Jewish background or a Muslim background or an atheist background. It doesn't matter whether they're rich or poor, young or old, educated or not. It doesn't matter even if they're an Everton supporter or a Liverpool supporter. If they're united to Christ and we're united to Christ, then we're united together through Jesus. The hostility disappears because we're together in Jesus. So you see, the important thing is being in Jesus. He is where life comes from. He is where unity comes from. 
These things are from Jesus, they're not from us. So that's the first half of the letter, kind of chapters one to three. You could say that's the theory. And now in the second half of the letter, Paul spends a bit more time focusing on the practice. He spends some time showing us how these wonderful truths about Christianity, how they should impact our lives, what they should do. So verse, chapter four, verse one began with these words. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And chapter four goes on to show how to cease lying, to cease being angry, how we mustn't steal, but we should live a life of love. And there's more in today's passage as well. Um, if you want to follow along in the church Bibles, we're on page 1176, that's Ephesians chapter five. Uh, and I'm gonna start there um, on page, on verse three. So chapter five, verse three. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed. Verse four, nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk or coarse joking. I asked earlier, um, how good is good enough? What can we get away with? We always like to know where the boundary is, don't we? Verse three again, but among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk or coarse joking. That's pretty black and white, isn't it? There's not any wiggle room here in these verses. It's all or nothing. I guess you could say it sounds a bit extreme, isn't it? Surely some of these things are okay, even just a little bit. Surely a little bit of these things is okay. But among you, there must not be even a hint. Why so extreme? Well, verse three continues. There must not be even a hint of sexual immorality of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Do you see what the letter is saying? It's not appropriate for God's people to engage in any sexual immorality or impurity or greed. God's people are holy. They're different. They're set apart. So by definition, there shouldn't be any of these immoral things in Christians. There shouldn't even be a hint. You might know what Jesus said in Matthew chapter five when he was talking about adultery. He said, even if you look at someone lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. You see, a Christian's actions, well, it goes beyond mere actions. It goes to our mind. It goes to our heart as well. You see, Christians, Christians shouldn't engage in any sexual immorality or any sexual impurity or in any lust. We're not to commit adultery. So if you're a man, you must not have sex with anyone who isn't your wife. If you're a woman, you must not have sex with anyone who isn't your husband. If you're unmarried, you must not have sex with anyone. 
The Bible is very clear. Sex is only for a husband and a wife to engage in. But it's not just sexual intercourse outside of marriage. Any sexual action, any sexual relationship, any pornography, any sexual fantasies, any hint of any of these, all of these things are improper for God's holy people. We shouldn't even be joking about such things in verse 4. That's out of place as well for God's people. No sexual immorality, no impurity, no greed, no joking about them. So if you consider yourself a Christian, I wonder how you're doing with that. These actions, these words, these thoughts, they're out of place. They're improper. Again, by definition, holy people should not behave in unholy ways. That's why Christians shouldn't even have a hint of such things about them. Christians should not do such things. By definition, Christians are holy. Christians are set apart. Christians are different. So if Christians continue to act in such a way, well, then they cease to be holy. They cease to be different. You see, if someone persists in sexual immorality, in obscene talk, in other things like that, well, it casts doubt on whether they're actually Christian in the first place. And if you don't believe me, look at verse 5. Do you see what it says in verse 5? For of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. No such person has any inheritance. That's damning, isn't it? Being disinherited from God, being cut off without any hope for the future or even the present. I guess all of us feel uncomfortable with such words. I felt pretty uncomfortable the past week as I've been thinking about how I'm going to speak on them. We want there to be a loophole, don't we? We want there to be a technicality, something that we've missed that will let us off. But the following verse confirms it further. Verse 6, Let no one deceive you with, such, with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Let no one deceive you with empty words. You see, don't listen to people who say that it doesn't matter how Christians live. It does. The Bible is clear on this. Don't listen to people who say, oh, it'll be all right. Just relax. Sure, love wins. Don't listen to them. Their words are empty. They've twisted what God has clearly said. You see, if you're unwilling to submit to Christ, well, then you're without Christ. Verse 5 again. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. So what about you? What about me? 
Verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. So back to that question I started with, how good is good enough? Not even a hint. So do we submit every area of our lives to Jesus? To how he wants us to live? In the things that are seen and in the things that we try to keep hidden? Or do we not really care? Do we not even bother? See, that's a dangerous position to be in. Now, at this point, um, I want to say something that's going to sound a bit contradictory to what I've just been saying. You see, here's the thing. For Christians, being good is not about trying harder. That might sound at odds with what we've just been thinking about. But think about what we heard a few weeks ago. Our effort doesn't make us a Christian. So remember chapter 2, it talked about how we're dead before we come to Jesus. Dead people can't do anything. It's not our effort. Or later in chapter 2, it's purely by grace that we have been saved. It's not our own effort. It's what Jesus has done for us. But similarly, it's not just the way into the Christian life that's not to do with us, the way on in the Christian life as well. See, our effort doesn't give us the ability to resist sin. It's not down to our effort and whether we can resist sin. Verse 8 explains. Verse 8 says, For you were once darkness, but now you are children Sorry, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. Do you see the change? It's all about Jesus. Before Jesus, we're in darkness. In fact, worse than that, we are darkness. But once we come to Jesus, we're light. We become light in the Lord when we're included in him. It's a change that Jesus causes in us when we're united with him. And you see, if we are children of light, if that change has occurred because of Jesus, well, then we have the ability to live as children of light. It's because of Jesus. Again, if we're in him, our very nature has changed. We become light in the Lord. If we're in him, we have the ability to say no to immorality, to impurity, to greed. If we're in Jesus, we've moved from death to life. Suddenly we can live and really live. Here's the thing that we sometimes don't grasp. If you're a Christian, you have the ability to say no to immorality. It's now possible. Be who you are. Get on with it. See, verse 10 says, find out what pleases the Lord and do it. Not what pleases me, not what pleases you, not what pleases somebody else. What pleases the Lord? You see, light is amazing. We saw that, didn't we, if you were here last night at the light fair. Light exposes things and light illuminates things. 
Verse 13 picks up in this idea. It says, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. Think of how bright the moon shines on a dark night. Think of how bright the moon shines when it's a full moon. It's so bright sometimes you can read a book, as long as the text is big enough, of course, but sometimes you can even read a book by moonlight. But the moon is only bright because the sun shines on it. The sunlight has turned the moon into a light. And verse 13 says, that's kind of what happens when someone becomes a Christian. Jesus shines on them. Christians just reflect the glory of God. If you're a Christian, if you trust in Jesus, Jesus is shining on you. You don't have to start burning yourself. You just need to reflect his light. So are you allowing his light to be reflected? Or are you trying to cover it over? Let Christ's light shine. Now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. Live as who God has transformed you to be. See, verse 14 uses, again, a similar idea. It says, that is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Wake up. Christ is shining on you. Stop sleeping. So are we allowing Christ to transform us for the better? Or are we sleepwalking in the dark? Wake up. Christ is shining. Let him transform you. Let him transform your thoughts, your desires, your behavior. That's what he's able to do. We can't do it, but he can do it. Now, before we finish, this passage mentions one other area of ungodliness. Verse uh, 18, it says this, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Do not get drunk on wine. Drunkenness. It's probably talking about all kinds of drunkenness, not just wine. It's not saying it's okay if you get drunk on beer. Um, all kinds of wine. All kinds of alcohol. In fact, you could probably even include drugs as well on this. You see, drunkenness leads to debauchery. Drunkenness, it brings out the worst in us. We lose control when we're drunk. Our thinking becomes warped. We think things that are unwise. We do things that are foolish. When we're drunk, sexual immorality becomes more likely. Coarse joking becomes more frequent. Drunkenness brings out the worst in us. Do you get drunk? Do you get tipsy? Even just a little bit? Verse 18 commands us not to. But it says something else instead. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Don't be filled with alcohol. Be filled with God's Spirit. See, drunkenness brings out the worst in us, but God's Spirit brings out the best in us because God's Spirit brings out the Jesus in us. See, God's Spirit at work in us transforms us. 
He allows us to build people up with wise words. God's Spirit enables us to praise God and to thank Him. God's Spirit allows us to be holy. That's completely different to what alcohol does, doesn't it? God's Spirit in us means God is at work in us. So as we finish, I want us just to remember that this passage is not full of suggestions. This passage is full of commands. Commands to each one of us who trust in Jesus. It said earlier, find out what pleases the Lord. Well, we've just found out this morning what pleases the Lord, haven't we? See, these are things that Jesus wants us to do. He wants to transform us. He is able to transform us because he dwells within us. But imagine the alternative. Imagine if Jesus was drunk. Imagine if Jesus committed adultery. Imagine if Jesus told crude jokes. That sounds offensive, doesn't it? It doesn't really bear thinking about. But if we claim to be Christians, if we claim to be united with Christ, if we're united with him, then when we do these things, it's as offensive to God as if his son Jesus Christ was doing these things. It would actually be better if we weren't Christians at all. But it should be the other way around, shouldn't it? Christ should be changing us. We should be becoming more like him. So let Christ's light shine on you. Let the Holy Spirit fill you, dwell within you, transform you. And they need to ask, what area of sin are you struggling with at the moment? What 10% is there that you don't really want to give to God, that you want to try and hide? Saying, look, Lord, I've got 90%. I'm doing pretty well. But what's the 10% that you don't want to admit up to? What do you want to keep the door closed to God on? What is it that you hope God won't notice? Those things that all of us struggle with that we probably don't even tell other people, hoping that they won't notice either. But God does know. He knows already. But here's the wonderful truth of this passage. If we trust in Jesus, if we're united with Christ, if we've got God's Holy Spirit dwelling within us, well, he has the power to transform us. So let Jesus transform you. And if you mess up and are very aware that you've messed up, he's also able to forgive us. So why don't we pray to him now? Heavenly Father, these words, not even a hint, how difficult for us. Lord, you know better than us how difficult it is. You know, Lord, where each one of us struggle. But Lord, this morning we've been reminded again that you desire us to be holy, to be godly, to not have any hint of any immorality in us or any impurity. 
not to act or to think or to say things that are against the glory of you. So Lord, we pray this morning that you would convict us of where there's sin in our lives, where there's things, Lord, that we haven't given over to you. Lord, thank you so much that in you there is forgiveness, that in you we can be forgiven, that in you we can be enabled to keep going. So Lord, please humble us. Please draw us back to you. Where we've given up, please pull us back, knowing, Lord, that the alternative is far worse. Please, Lord, would each one of us be holy? Would we act as we are, as children of light? Would we reflect your light, the light of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ? Would we give your Holy Spirit free reign in our lives? And Lord, as we read your word, as things are confronted with us, as we realize that the way in which we've been living isn't up to your mark, please pull us back to you. Please give us the humility to admit. And also, Lord, the humility to know that it's not down to our effort, but it's down to your effort. It's down to your Son and your Holy Spirit. So please, Lord, would you be at work in each one of us. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.